Hey guys, welcome to another episode of True Crimes and Weird Times. I'm Kim, and unfortunately, Ashley isn't going to be joining me for this episode. But today, I'm going to be telling you about the mysterious death of Jonathan Luna, a 38-year-old prosecutor who left his office after work one night and ended up stabbed and dead in a stream. Here's the crazy part, though. The FBI claims that it was a suicide. Jonathan Luna was born October 21, 1965, and grew up in the housing projects in South Bronx, New York. Jonathan was determined to do better for himself and get out of that neighborhood, so after high school, he got his undergraduate degree from Fordham University, then went on to study law at the University of North Carolina. Jonathan was kind, he made friends easily, he was very smart, and was clearly a very hard worker. While in North Carolina for school, he met a woman named Angela Hopkins. The two instantly hit it off and were married August 29, 1993, and would go on to have two children. Jonathan worked a couple of different jobs as a lawyer before finally moving to Baltimore to become a prosecutor for the U.S. Attorney's Office. Jonathan worked really hard at this job, staying late, coming in early, He also got along well with his colleagues who described him as smart, funny, and loyal. Everything seemed to be going pretty great for Jonathan for a while, but then he got a new boss. And as we all know, bosses can make your life pretty miserable. This new boss didn't really like Jonathan all that much. His name was Thomas DiBaggio, and Jonathan had cut some deals against Thomas's objections in a couple of cases, which put Jonathan on Thomas's bad side. Because of this, Jonathan had reportedly been talking about changing jobs. He was really struggling with being the target of his boss's anger. He also expressed concern about being fired. And according to the Washington Post, Thomas actually did try to fire Jonathan, But Jonathan got a lawyer who talked Thomas into changing his mind. Thomas, however, denies that Jonathan's job was ever in jeopardy. Either way, while he was still at this job, Jonathan got the case that may have started all the mystery surrounding his death. Jonathan Luna was working a case against a man named Nako Brown. Now, Brown was being tried for a series of bank robberies, and Jonathan and his co-prosecutor were planning to have him sentenced to 25 years for this. Tens of thousands of dollars were seized from a safe belonging to Brown's accomplice and was actually brought into the courtroom as evidence during the trial, which was pretty unusual. Brown was found guilty on September 26, 2002, but sometime between the courtroom and the government storage area, $36,000 disappeared from the cash evidence. Now, that sounds like a lot of money to swipe quickly, but the money was heat sealed into three separate plastic containers, one of which vanished. Jonathan was set to take a polygraph test about the money, but never actually got the chance to do it before his death. And it turns out Jonathan had a secret credit card on which he owed around $25,000. And according to the Baltimore Sun, Jonathan came into a large sum of money shortly before his death. 
I don't know exactly how much, but it was said to be more than $10,000. Now, the person who took the money was never caught, and Jonathan may have had nothing to do with it at all. In fact, apparently the cash was left alone more than once, leaving ample opportunity for someone to grab it unnoticed. Also, people who knew him have a really hard time believing Jonathan would take that money, but it can't be ruled out as a possibility. On December 3, 2003, Jonathan was working on closing a case against two drug dealers. This case was apparently in danger of falling apart, and Jonathan had recently been late to court, causing him to get a $25 fine. So Jonathan was pretty stressed out during this case. And maybe the stress from this case was a contributing factor to what Jonathan did next, because it really doesn't make that much sense. Late that night, Jonathan told a defense attorney in the case that he was heading back to the office to finish up the paperwork for the next morning. He said he would have it faxed over by midnight. At 11.38, Jonathan's silver Honda Accord left the parking garage at his office, but he didn't head home to his wife, two young boys, and his elderly parents he had recently started caring for. Instead, he headed northeast on Interstate 95 using his Easy Pass to pay tolls in Maryland and Delaware. At 12.57 a.m., $200 was withdrawn from Jonathan's bank account from an ATM near Newark, Delaware. Then at 2.47 a.m., Jonathan crossed the toll bridge over the Delaware River to the Pennsylvania Turnpike. Now, this portion of the drive has remained a mystery to investigators. The drive from Newark to the Turnpike should have only taken about 45 minutes, but it took Jonathan an hour and 40 minutes. Police are just totally unsure what he did during this time. He could have stopped somewhere. He could have taken back roads. He could have just driven slowly. Although I can't imagine he drove slow enough to add that much extra time onto his traveling. At 3.20 a.m., Jonathan's debit card was used to buy gas, a snack, and a drink at a Seneca gas station. His last known whereabouts were at 4.04 a.m. when his car left the turnpike at the Reading-Lancaster interchange. The toll ticket had a spot of blood on it, suggesting that Jonathan was already injured at this point. However, the toll booth attendant wasn't alarmed, so it must not have been very severe. Now, the thing about this route is that it just does not make any sense. Jonathan could have taken a direct route and been home in about an hour. No one knows where he was going or what he was doing that night. Investigators also can't be sure if he was alone the whole time or not. The same morning at 5 a.m., a man named Daniel Gammon arrived at his job at Cincinnati and Weaver Well Drilling and noticed some taillights off near the woods. He and a co-worker head over to the car, which was still idling with the front wheels right on the edge of the water by a stream, and they were thinking, you know, maybe a drunk driver ran off the road. It wasn't super uncommon around there, so they went to check it out. But when they reach the silver Honda Accord, they find blood everywhere, smeared on the driver's side door, and the back seat was soaked. But they didn't see any sign of the driver, so they immediately call the police. When the police arrive, they find blood on the driver's door, the fender, and a large pool of blood in the back seat. The $200 in cash Jonathan had withdrawn was strewn about the inside of the car. There were also no signs that the car had been in an accident. 
As police search, it doesn't take them long to find the body of Jonathan Luna laying face down in the stream underneath the car's engine. He was still wearing his suit, tie, black overcoat, and his court ID around his neck. Jonathan had dozens of stab wounds to his body from his own pen knife, which was found in the mud nearby. 36 stab wounds in total, most of which were to his chest and neck. Many of the wounds were superficial, but one stab wound had punctured his carotid artery. He also had a head wound, possibly from falling in the creek, and the final cause of death was actually drowning. Now, I found conflicting information about this, but he also may have had some injuries to his genitals. Some sources say he had bruising on his testicles, while others said he did not, so I can't really confirm if that one was true or not. The same with the blood in the back seat. Most early articles about this case say investigators found two types of blood in the back seat and were sending them off to be tested. But the more recent articles either don't mention them or deny that there were two different types of blood back there. So that's another one I can't really say for sure if there were or not. But there was so much blood in the back seat that it had soaked through the seat and covered the carpet in the floorboard. Back at Jonathan's office, police find another puzzling piece of evidence. Jonathan had left both his cell phone and his glasses on his desktop at work. And Jonathan would have needed his glasses to drive. So how and why did he travel so far and for so long without them? Initially to investigators, this was a clear homicide, possibly also an abduction, especially with his glasses and cell phone being left behind. He was also supposed to fax those documents over by midnight, but he never sent them. However, about a year after Jonathan's death, the FBI released a statement saying that he was actually alone from the time he left his office until his death. They claim the superficial wounds were actually hesitation marks and that Jonathan's death was a suicide. Police also dug into Jonathan's personal life and discovered the $25,000 in debt and the investigation into the missing $36,000. They also investigated some online dating profiles under the name Jonathan Luna that described him as a discreet married man looking for a white woman. But it was never confirmed that this profile belonged to Jonathan, at least not publicly in the articles. Now, there are three prominent theories on what happened to Jonathan that night. The first one is obviously homicide. Jonathan was a prosecutor, so it's not out of the question that someone he had previously prosecuted would be out to get him, possibly even from his most recent case against the drug dealers. Then there's the money. Why did Jonathan withdraw $200? Most of it was still in the car scattered about, so why even take the money out? Especially when you consider the fact that he didn't use the cash to pay for his gas, drink, and snacks at the gas station later. He used his debit card. So what was that $200 for? Then there's the blood on the toll ticket. Clearly Jonathan was already injured in some way by then. I mean, what are the chances he was driving around stabbing himself? Also, the possible bruising on his genitals led police to wonder if it was possibly a hookup gone bad, 
most likely with a sex worker. But if that was the case, why didn't she take the money? And why was Jonathan fully clothed down to his court ID? Surely if he had gone off to meet some woman, he would be at least a little more undressed than that, at least not still be wearing his court ID from earlier in the day. But then maybe not. You never know with these things. But at the same time, I still feel like if he was killed by a prostitute, she would have taken the money rather than leaving it in the car. However, there's also the theory about Jonathan having an affair that police had brought up before. They never publicly stated that he was, but they did talk publicly about investigating his relationships and made the statement about investigating the messages under Jonathan Luna on the dating websites. So if he was having an affair and this woman was upset that she was not being chosen or that Jonathan wasn't doing the right things, maybe she's the one who killed him. But then where would she have gone? If she was in the car with him, how did she get away without leaving any traces behind? How would she have gotten back home? And like I said, we don't have any confirmation that Jonathan even was having an affair. And his wife has never spoken publicly about the case, so we don't have any information from her either. But the biggest thing for me that is so weird is the glasses. Why would Jonathan leave them at work if he needed them to drive? Surely he would have remembered them as he was leaving, you know, and couldn't see as he tried to drive away. He could have gone back inside to get them. He probably should have gone back inside to get them. So what was it that made Jonathan just abandon his glasses that he needed to see before driving such a long distance for so long at night? Which begs the question, did Jonathan leave on his own? Or was he abducted or forced to leave? And if he did leave on his own, why did he take this bizarre route? He was over 70 miles from home when his body was found. And the route he took, we'll post a picture of it on social media for you. But it's, it's just very strange. He doesn't make a straight line anywhere. There doesn't seem to be any specific destination. It's almost as if he's just driving. But why? Where was he going? What was he doing? Police also theorized for a while that Jonathan left on his own, then picked someone up or was abducted along the route somewhere. But again, no one is actually sure. And why would all the blood be in the back seat if Jonathan was alone? Why would he move to the back of the car before stabbing himself if it was a suicide? So was Jonathan abducted, stabbed, and thrown into the river to drown? Or did he do this to himself? The next theory of suicide, I have to say the evidence is is kind of there. It's not as far-fetched as it sounds in the beginning. First, there are the superficial wounds on Jonathan that could be hesitation marks. The majority of his stab wounds were superficial, And the fact that it was a penknife and not, you know, a better weapon feels a little improvised to me. There's also the fact that the FBI is claiming he was alone the whole time. And I have to assume that the FBI really looked into this case and really did their due diligence to find this out for sure. Did they actually? I don't know. I can't say. I'm not in the FBI. But I have to go into it assuming that they did. Which means if Jonathan was, in fact, alone the whole time, 
there's really no other option besides suicide. Plus, Jonathan was stabbed with his own knife and had no defensive wounds on his hands or arms. So it's possible that Jonathan stabbed himself. Then when he hit his carotid artery, he maybe panicked, left the car, and then fell into the stream, hitting his head and ultimately drowning. But why would Jonathan commit suicide? Well, like I said before, he was in a lot of debt and he had been hiding that debt. He was also under investigation for the missing money with a polygraph quickly approaching. He was also under a lot of stress at work with his boss and the fear of losing his job. And he was under a lot of stress at home, caring for two small boys and his elderly parents. So maybe the stress of all that led him to this. But we all know that when it comes to suicide, sometimes there's no clear answer as to why. And maybe he took such a strange route and didn't care about his glasses because he was already planning it and didn't think it really mattered if he had his glasses that night. Maybe he just drove around to think and debate on his decision. Jonathan's friends and family, however, don't believe this conclusion and firmly believe that Jonathan was murdered. There's one other theory that I found pretty interesting And this theory claims that Jonathan was trying to fake his own abduction and accidentally killed himself. So basically, this theory is saying, what if the wounds were superficial because that's all he intended to do? And then when he accidentally punctured an artery, he panicked, got out of the car, stumbled into the water, falling and hitting his head, ultimately drowning. My problem with this theory is the why. What would he have accomplished by faking an abduction? It wouldn't clear his debt. It wouldn't get him out of the polygraph examination, at least not for very long. So was he just trying to delay the polygraph? And why allow himself to be seen and tracked on these toll roads if he wanted it to seem like an abduction? Wouldn't you try more to avoid sight and avoid being tracked so they couldn't find out that you were alone? But maybe he wanted to be tracked so that they could find him later, you know, injured, but okay. But again, I just come back to why? What possible purpose would this serve faking an abduction? And it just seems so out of character for Jonathan. And as a prosecutor, you would think he would be somewhat aware of how to make things seem very believable and make things seem like you were actually abducted. He knows about evidence. He knows how the justice system works. But if the FBI were able to say definitively that he was alone based on witness testimony and the toll cameras and the past usage, then why would he take a route that would give them so much evidence to the contrary that he was being abducted? So while I feel like this is a credible theory, I personally just don't understand why. Why would he fake an abduction? We have so many unanswered questions in this case that it makes it difficult to come to a conclusion. Things like the glasses. Why and how did he drive that far without them? How did he manage to even know where he was going? I know when I wore glasses and contacts, if I didn't have them in, I wasn't driving anywhere. I couldn't see the road. So I don't know how bad Jonathan's eyes were, but he did reportedly need them for driving. So how did he make it that far without an accident? Or how did he even know where he was going? 
Also, why did he leave his cell phone at the office? I mean, I know we forget, but if he forgot both his cell phone and his glasses, I feel like he would have noticed at some point after getting in the car or shortly after trying to drive away. Why would he not go back for either one of those things? Another question is, why did Jonathan take the route that he did and what was he doing? Did he meet somebody? Was he alone the whole time? Did he even have a destination? Was he just driving? I mean, we, we don't know the answers to any of these questions. And that's one of the biggest mysteries in this case is why did Jonathan make this drive and where was he going? But at this point, it's 17 years after his death, and we still don't have answers to those questions. Last year in 2020, the coroner's office in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, found autopsy records relating to the case that were thought to be in federal custody, but were actually just sitting in a basement somewhere. A private investigator petitioned the judge to unseal the records, but it was denied. The judge stated that since the case remains open, disclosure of these records could compromise the investigation. But if the FBI is so certain it was a suicide, who exactly are they trying to catch here? Why would they not be able to unseal the records? Ultimately, to this day, no one actually knows what happened to Jonathan Luna. Was it a suicide? Was it a murder? Or was it a faked abduction just gone wrong? This remains one of the most puzzling cases I have ever covered to date. And one of those cases that I really, really hope that we one day get some answers to. Thanks for listening. Like us on Facebook at True Crimes and Weird Times Podcast. Follow us on Instagram at True Crimes Weird Times. Email us your stories at truecrimesweirdtimes at gmail.com. Can't wait for the next episode? Check out our Patreon for bonus episodes and more. And if you enjoyed the show, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. Bye!